covenant breaking that we've been doing. But God throws in encouragement and strength when we need it. So he starts chapter 30 by saying that he will turn away the captivity of his people and they'll serve him and will serve David who will ultimately be raised up. I think that there will be a type of David raised up in the end time that will lead God's people in the right direction. But the original David will also come up, the culmination of all this, the first resurrection, and then be there for all Israel, not just spiritual Israel. <clears throat> but spiritual Israel is in dire need of leadership in the right directions now, and these are things that will be accomplished first in the church, secondarily then with physical Israel when the real David comes up. And he says that Jerusalem will be builded <clears throat> upon the ashes or the heap of what was destroyed. Very encouraging. <clears throat> and in the latter days, we're supposed to consider this, verse 24 of chapter 30. And then he begins to show how he is going to do it. I'm doing a brief recap here before we get to chapter 32 where we are supposed to start today. <clears throat> but he says in verse 2 of 31, that his people will find grace in the wilderness. That is where God's good favor will return, is somewhere in the wilderness. And how he will restore us as spiritual virgins. That there will be a cry at some point that we're supposed to go up to Zion because the watchmen on Mount Ephraim are watching. And that cry will be made Verse 12, we'll go sing in the height of Zion and flow together to the goodness of the eternal for wheat, for wine, for oil, for the young of the flock, of the herd, and so on. <clears throat> he shows in verse 22 that there'll be a new thing. A woman will compass a man. Uh, that in the end time, Zerubbabel will be the leader of the end time church, the leader of the two witnesses and the church. And I think that that is the reference to him in Isaiah 4, Zechariah 4, and other places, so that all seven churches that are set up in the wilderness, as per Isaiah 41, uh, will compass that one man. So instead of a man pursuing a woman, the woman is going to pursue the man. It's just the opposite. Most in the church do not understand this today, so we still have the men of the leadership of all the organizations going out and pursuing the woman, pursuing the church, pursuing membership, trying to build big organizations, trying to do a big work at the end. <clears throat> and yet everything in the Bible, everything in the prophecies, countermands that. <clears throat> says that that is not what is to be done, but God will show something, show something new and different that the woman, the women, the church will come to the man instead of vice versa. That will be a new approach, a miraculous happening, if you will. <clears throat> then he talks in verse 31 about a new covenant and how everyone will know God at that time. So this certainly uh, will be ultimately fulfilled in the millennium. And then he shows that these promises he's making here are just as sure as daylight and dark, as day and night, as the sun coming up and the sun going down, and that it ultimately will spread all around Jerusalem, spiritual Judah, and ultimately, of course, Jerusalem 
represents the capital of all Israel, physical Israel. And it will go all the way around from the first gate through the twelfth. And it will never be plucked up again. But once God starts this end-time work that has to be done and begins to draw his remnant together, the woman seeking the man, then it will never, ever be plucked up again. It will grow and grow until it encompasses the entire world. All right, with that thought then, which is very encouraging, let's go to chapter 20, or 32. Now, in the midst of this encouragement, it's interesting what happens next. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Eternal in the tenth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, which was the eighteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar, for then the king of Babylon's army besieged Jerusalem, and Jeremiah the prophet was shut up in the court of the prison, which was in the king of Judah's house. So he begins to give a positive message after having given dire reports of what will happen if repentance does not occur, that the city would be besieged, would be destroyed, and taken into captivity. Now he's in line for a medal here, isn't he? Isn't he in line for honor, for having told the truth of what would happen? He told them all ahead of time, this is what is going to happen if you don't do this, this, and this. They didn't do what Jeremiah said, so it started happening, and you would have thought that they would have called Jeremiah up and said, man, you were right all along. The things you said were true. They are happening right now. Sit at the king's table. Have the finest steak on the plate that there is. And a glass of wine with it, Jeremiah, you did good. You were the only one that told us the truth. Not the way it works with people. You tell them what they need to do. A, they don't want to hear it. B, they don't do it. Then what you say will come, comes, and they throw you in prison. Kill the messenger. Israel has always done that. And that will not change. The two witnesses are going to come on the scene and tell the world why this is happening, what they need to do about it, what will happen if they don't, and they will be killed for the crop. It's that simple. So history is repeated over and over again. <clears throat> for Zedekiah, king of Judah, had shut him up, saying, why do you prophesy and say, thus says the Lord, Behold, I will give this city to the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall take it. And he says this, while Nebuchadnezzar's armies are besieging the law. Why do you say this? Well, I think if you look around, you can see why I was saying this. They're out there right now battering the walls down. Zedekiah, king of Judah, shall not escape out of the hand of the Chaldeans. He had made this personal prophecy to him. But shall surely be delivered into the hand of the king of Babylon, and shall speak with him mouth to mouth, and his eyes shall behold his eyes. So he said, you're not going to escape. You're going to be looking eyeball to eyeball in Nebuchadnezzar's face. Now, how would you as an American today like to be turned over to the president of Iran and see his face eyeball to eyeball. How many of you would like to be sent to Iraq and turned over to the Iraqi people right now 
eyeball to eyeball. Now that's what Jeremiah was telling Zedekiah would happen to him. So someone who absolutely hated the Israelite people and wanted to bring them into subjection, that he would have to face the enemy eyeball to eyeball. I would hate to be turned over to Osama bin Laden. He might call President Bush and get me in trouble. I don't know. I say that somewhat tongue-in-cheek. It's not very far in there, though. <clears throat> and he shall lead Zedekiah to Babylon, and there shall he be until I visit him, says Eternal. Though you fight with the Chaldeans, you shall not prosper. It's not going to happen. He says, why did you preach this? So that's the political situation Jeremiah is in, the setting of chapter 32. Now God goes on to show some marvelous things. We're not through with the encouraging part here. Let's see what happens next. Verse 6, Jeremiah said, The word of the Eternal came to me, saying, Behold, Hananiel, and Hananiel means grace of God, the son of Shalom, which means recompense, your uncle shall come to you, saying, Buy you my field, that is an anatoth, which means answer, as in answer to prayer, or other answers that might come, but the word means answer. <clears throat> For the right of redemption is yours to buy it. So he said, your uncle's one to come and tell you to do this. So Hanamiel, my uncle's son, came to me in the court of the prison according to the word of the eternal and said to me, Buy my field, I pray you, that is in Anatot, which is in the country of Benjamin. Just a short, I think it's, what was it, four, five, six miles, or three miles, whatever, I forget now, from Jerusalem. It wasn't far away. Uh, for the right of inheritance is yours, and the redemption is yours. Buy it for yourself. Then I knew that this was the word of the eternal. So God told him that it happened, and he knew, indeed, that it had come from God. And I bought the field of Hanamiel, my uncle's son, that was in Anathoth, and weighed him the money, even 17 shekels of silver. And I subscribed the evidence and sealed it and took witnesses and weighed him the money and the balances, doing all this from prison. So I took the evidence of the purchase, both that which was sealed according to the law and custom, and that which was open, so it's like a real estate transaction, and it had to all be recorded like we would do today. Different process, I'm sure, but essentially the same thing. And I gave the evidence of the purchase unto Baruch, the son of Neriah, the son of Maasiah, in the sight of Hanamiel, my uncle's son, and in the presence of the witnesses, described the book, of the purchase before all the Jews that sat in the court of the prison. So it was a matter of public record that he had bought the field in Anatoth. <clears throat> of course, the question comes up, and I did give a sermon on this some time back, well, why did we call this field that we bought here, of 110 acres, Anatoth? And the answer to that is that I believe God instructs the end-time church in Micah 4 to leave the city and go dwell in a field. says it very clearly there. But the perplexing part of the thing is that God doesn't say exactly where that field is. He doesn't name it like he did for Jeremiah. But we're still told to go and live in the field apart from the city 
and that there we would be delivered. Now he says back here, which we just read, that we would find grace in the wilderness. So the field that God would have us go to in the end time, I would think, should be in a wilderness area, because that's where grace will be found, where God will begin to bless. Now with our understanding of this area, which I will not go into in depth at this point, but of Zion and, and much that we grasp that God is showing, uh, it seemed that that field should be somewhere in that area. So I searched for actually three or four years, I guess, uh, somewhere within the Four Corners area of the southwest, God does say he will gather his people from the four corners. Is it only ironic that we have a place in this area called the four corners? I think not. I think it is all done according to plan, way ahead of time, and men simply did what God had in mind. He was able to direct that, being sovereign over all the universe. So I looked every direction within these four states, Utah, Colorado, Arizona, and New Mexico, in this general area. Nothing would open. So we all, some of us began to move into the general area here, into Canab, St. George, Hurricane, thinking that we needed to be in this area. We acted on what we felt God wanted us to do, even though we didn't know exactly which field to go to yet. But many prayers and some fasting and some looking went into finding a place that would be suitable. And then, lo and behold, it turned up when the time was right, and the conditions were such, we've been through that, that you could not deny it if you knew what we had been through. And the conditions that were offered, even, they were, all of them, every condition, amount of down payment, uh, payments, interest rate, everything was lower. I mean, he, he put it in the newspaper at one level, or I talked to him on the phone, and it was one level. And I said, well, I'm going to try to talk him down in all three areas to a lower level, because that's part of my nature. And I went in, and he made an offer lower than I had even desired to bargain. Now, to me, who likes to bargain, I was speechless, and I signed immediately, because I felt it was an answer from God. So, I believe he gave us this place, or almost gave it to us, as someone said. It had to be given or almost given, and it was virtually given to us. Sure, we have to make payments, but when we divide it, among ourselves, it is not a big payment, and certainly the conditions were such that without money, we could have this place. And I believe that if we use it for the right purposes, if we overcome and grow here, God will use it as a stepping stone to greater things, because he will incorporate us into what he is doing if we respond to him properly. We will be a part of what God is doing, because I think we're already showing that we are a part of that. We have been willing 
to do what God said. Leave our families, our lands, our homes, our cities, our jobs, and come out in the wilderness. Now, he tells us to do that before the crash occurs in Zephaniah 1 and 2. Well, Zephaniah 1 gives gives the decree of a crash. Zephaniah 2 tells us to gather ourselves before that decree comes to pass. How far away is that decree? Everything I read, everything I observe, everything I see happening in this society indicates that the American monetary system is going to crash pretty soon. So we have done this and gotten it prepared basically in the very nick of time, it appears, and we're still not completely prepared for all that will come. And how much of that we will suffer, I do not know, but I feel very deeply that God answered our prayers with this piece of land, this field, if you will, and that we are to establish an agricultural society here which will provide food for us and for others who eventually will come. That is the purpose. Now, we may not have everything we need yet, but God will supply it when the time is right. He's already given us water beyond what most people anywhere around in this neighborhood have. We were blessed with that. Now, let's go on to see what point God was making here by having Jeremiah buy this field. Because God does not do things without reason. Verse 13, And I charged Baruch before them, saying, Thus says the eternal God of hosts, the God of Israel, Take these evidences, this evidence of the purchase, both which is sealed, and this evidence which is open or public, and put them in an earthen vessel, that they may continue many days. So what was done there was something that needed to sit and perk a while. Just as what we are doing will not come without reward in a while, but it has to perk. It takes time for things to happen. For thus says the eternal of hosts, the God of Israel, houses and fields and vineyards shall be possessed again in this land. Now this was written at a time when Jeremiah was in prison because he told them they were going into captivity. And at the same time that Nebuchadnezzar's armies were actually out there besieging the walls, Jeremiah buys this field as a sign from God that again Israel and Judah would dwell in the land God gave them and plant fields and vineyards and build houses again. Now this is an end time prophecy which is very clear from talking about understanding it in the latter days at the end of chapter 30 about what God is doing that will not be plucked up anymore, because that prophecy obviously could not have had its consummation or finality in that captivity of Nebuchadnezzar, which lasted those 70 years. Because we well know Israel is about to go into captivity again. So when they came back from Babylon after that 70 years, that was not 
the final fulfillment of this prophecy. Couldn't have been. Because we know from the rest of the Bible that Israel is about to begin to go into captivity. So this is talking about the final captivity in the latter days. This is talking about you and me today. That in this land of Israel, America, Britain, other countries of Israel, wherever they may be located, after this incredible devastation where 90 plus percent of our people are going to shortly die in this land, there will be peace again after Christ returns. There will not be peace in the church until the remnant comes together. Someone called me this morning from somewhere. Well, won't these ministers get together? Well, I'll tell you why they don't get together. It isn't prophesied that they will. In fact, it's prophesied that they won't. And that the individual members of the church are going to have to be drawn together as a remnant from all over the world because they will come to the leadership God provides. The leadership of the organizations of the church as they now stand will be destroyed. Well, one stone is left upon another, and those individuals will have to find their way to where God is working. Don't want to know why they don't? They can't. They won't. Each feels that he is important and autonomous in his own way, doing the work of God. And frankly, none of them are. There is not a work of God that is going on right now that is visible anywhere to anyone, and none of them are having success at what they are doing. shows God's hand is not there, and the two witnesses have not come on the scene that the remnant can come to them yet, so therefore nothing is happening. The work right now is exactly what Herbert Armstrong said before he died, His work was done, the work was finished, get the church ready. We need to be overcoming and growing individually, and we need to be responding to those scriptures in Zephaniah 1 and 2, and in Micah 4, and in Jeremiah 50 through 52, and in Isaiah, and all through, which indicate we are to draw ourselves out of the world, physically and spiritually, And begin to establish what God would have us do. And live the way God would have us live. So it makes a promise here. That when this last captivity occurs. That God will again bring Israel together. Now, when I had delivered the evidence of the purchase to Baruch, the son of Neriah, I prayed unto the eternal saying, now verse 17, O Lord God, behold, you have made the heaven and the earth by your great power and stretched out arm, and there is nothing too hard for you. We can look at the church today, we can look at this nation today, and we can see that there really is no solution, but nothing is bigger than God. You show loving kindness to thousands, 
and recompense the iniquity of the fathers into the bosom of their children after them. The great, the mighty God, the Lord of hosts, is his name. I think it is very interesting that Exodus 20, verse 6 is quoted here, where even in the Ten Commandments, speaking to roughly three and a half million Israelites, God said he would show mercy to thousands who obeyed him and kept his commandments. Not millions, and there were millions of them. Now we have hundreds of millions of Israelites living, six and a half billion people on the earth, and yet here in an end-time prophecy, God shows he will have mercy on thousands. Not tens of thousands, not hundreds of thousands, not millions, not billions, but thousands. Is that a mistake? No, it is not. How many Protestants, how many tens of millions or hundreds of millions of Protestants and Catholics think they'll be in the resurrection or the rapture or whatever version of it that they espouse? How many Islamics think they're going to heaven and have the promises of Mohammed? How many Hindus and Shintos, you know, and on and on and goes. God is only going to have mercy and loving kindness in the end on thousands. I believe that to be a few thousands for the faithful remnant of what was the worldwide church of God. Just a few thousand. My guess is seven to twelve. Ten percent of what we have. So his end-time work is not going to be a monstrous thing. It's going to be very small. Nothing is too hard for him. He will show loving kindness to thousands and recompense the iniquity of the fathers and of the bosom of their children after them. The great, the mighty God, the Lord of hosts is his name. Great in counsel and mighty in work. For your eyes are open upon all the ways of the sons of men to give everyone according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. Well, now, if God is going to give according to everyone's ways and the fruit of his doings, I can't see how there could be more than a few thousand in the world today. Because, for the most part, men choose to ignore God. They did in Jeremiah's day, and they are today. And even most of the church that call out once are not searching the scriptures to see what God says. They're just going on in the mode in which they were set. And that all came unraveled and came apart under them. And still, they continue without seeing what God has to say today. So how can it be more than thousands? which have set signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, even to this day, and in Israel, and among other men. Says, all we have to do is look at history, Jeremiah says, of what God has done before and what he will do again. If he did it in the past, and he says he'll do it, he's going to do it. And he's made himself a name, as at this day. And has brought forth your people Israel out of the land of Egypt with signs and with wonders. It talks in Zechariah 3 about signs and wonders being done in the end time, and then God will reveal his servant, the branch, which is speaking of Zerubbabel in chapter 4. 
and has given them this land which you did swear to their fathers to give them, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they came in and possessed it. <clears throat> Didn't we come in and possess this country? Beautiful, wonderful lands. Very, very blessed, considering all the hardships and difficulties in other areas of the world. Tremendous temperate climate, fertile, much water, beautiful land that God gave us. But they obeyed not your voice, neither walked in your law. They have done nothing of all that you commanded them to do. Therefore, you have caused all this evil to come upon them. And there are those in this country today who are trying to banish God from our consciousness. Get God completely gone from this country. <clears throat> and they want to divide and destroy the country that God gave us. That's almost like Esau selling it for a bowl of yellow, of uh, red soup. Do you think that is going to make God happy? Behold, the mouths, they have come to the city to take it. That is the things that they lay against the wall to climb in. And the city is given to the hand of the Chaldeans that fight against it because of the sword and of the famine and of the pestilence. And what you have spoken is come to pass, and behold, you see it. Jeremiah says, you put me in prison, but it's happening right before your very eyes. And you've said to me, O Lord God, buy you the field for money and take witnesses, for the city is given into the hand of the Chaldeans. But speaking of Jerusalem here, not Anaton, that's the city that was besieged, was Jerusalem. But Anatot, a small village, and I think that that was done with great purpose. God will start with small villages with his spiritual Jews, and that will expand ultimately once Christ returns to include the entire world. So God begins things small, and then they are expanded. So that small area of Anatot and a field out of it, not the whole city even, or town or village, but just that field was there as a testimony that God would again return blessings after Jerusalem was destroyed and taken captive. Verse 26, Then came the word of the Eternal to Jeremiah, saying, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? I can destroy America, God says. I can destroy South Africa and Britain and France. I can destroy Australia. The nations are as a drop in the bucket, remember. They amount to nothing. So God says, if I say it's going down, it's going down. There's no stopping it. Therefore, thus says the eternal, behold, I will give this city to the hand of the Chaldeans, and into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he shall take it. And the Chaldeans that fight against this city shall come and set fire on this city, and burn it with the houses upon whose roofs they have offered incense to Baal and poured out drink offerings to other gods to provoke me to anger. Now, if you look at the church, the spiritual Israel, we stood by absolutely hopelessly, didn't we? When the Koch and company took over, was there anything we could do about it? Nothing. They were in charge. They held the money bags. 
They had the physical facilities. They had allegedly, at least, Herbert Armstrong's permission to be in charge. And we stood by helplessly as it all fell apart. God decreed that it would happen, and it happened. He has also decreed this country is going to come apart, and it is in the process of happening. It's going to come suddenly. Verse 30. Once the reasons for the children of Israel and the children of Judah have only done evil before me from their youth. For the children of Israel have only provoked me to anger with the work of their hands, says the Eternal. There's cause and effect. For this city has been to me as a provocation of my anger and of my fury from the day that they built it even to this day that I should remove it from before my face. It is in the nature of mankind always to want to feel good about self, to feel important, to feel talented. Therefore, we have vanity, ego, about our beauty, our strength, our abilities, or whatever it might be. And we go at great lengths, sometimes bragging and putting forward the self to make us look good in our eyes or the eyes of others. We did it as a church. We said, we're okay. We have need of nothing. We're just doing fine. And God does not like that kind of pride and vanity. He's seeking humility and meekness. Anytime you catch yourself bragging, you need to stop and ask yourself, what am I bragging about? <laughs> Who am I anyway? I'm trying to make myself look good in the eyes of men. But God sees through all that. There aren't any of us that are mighty and noble and wise and wonderful. But we'd like everyone to think we are, and we'd certainly like to think that of ourselves. But God is the only one that's good. God is the one with the power and the strength and the might and the love and the mercy and the meekness and everything that is needed. But we've provoked God, and he removed us from before his face. Because of all the evil of the children of Israel and the children of Judah, which they have done to provoke me to anger, they, their kings, their princes, their priests, their prophets, the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So, the leadership and the inhabitants. And they have turned to me the back and not the face. And we read all those scriptures where God says, I've turned my face from you, but who turned first? We turned our back on God and went on about our ways, and now he has turned his face from us. He said he will never leave us nor forsake us, but we forsook him and built a church in our image of ourselves, thinking we were something and in need of nothing. So they turned me the back and not the face, though I taught them, rising up early and teaching them, yet they have not hearkened to receive instruction. But they set their abominations in the house which is called by my name to defile it. So things were put in God's church to defile it. Look back at what was injected into God's church. Protestant doctrine. 
That's what was injected. Makeup. Going to doctors for healing. Those were the first two. Tithing was taken away. Well, that was when it was restored. Because he found out that people didn't have as much forgiving nature as he said they would. But tithing was taken out. God had doctrines introduced into his church by men which were ungodly. The Trinity. You know, the list just goes on and on. They reintroduced Protestantism. God didn't like that. He didn't like the vanity and ego we already had and our self-righteous, proud attitude. And then all this paganism was brought in. we got to come out of that. All of it. Virtually anything that the Scotches had put into the church or changed was changed away from God. I cannot think of one example of anything that they did that led us to the Bible instead of away from it. Every doctrine they changed takes us away from Scripture. So he's removed it from before his face. Verse 32, because of all the evil of the children of Israel and of the children of Judah, which they have done to provoke me to anger. Oh, I've already read that. Verse 34, but they set their abominations in the house which is called by my name to defile it. And they built the high places of Baal, which were in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to cause their sons and their daughters to pass through the fire to Molech. Now, we don't have child sacrifices where we burn our children today. But just as surely on a spiritual level, when you take them away from Scripture and back to Protestantism, you are endangering them of going into the fire of tribulation, which is just ahead, and ultimately into Gehenna fire if they don't repent of it. So it's the same thing, only worse. And now, therefore, thus says the Eternal, the God of Israel, concerning this city, Jerusalem, which is typical of the church. Wherefore you say it shall be delivered into the hand of the king of Babylon by the sword and by the famine and by the pestilence. Behold, I will gather them out of all countries where I have driven them in my anger and in my fury and in great wrath. And I will bring them again to this place and I will cause them to dwell in safety. So God is going to turn it around. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. Well, why did we have to go through this? Why have we so far, and why do we have to go through what is getting worse? Because we won't listen to God. We have our own ideas. We have our own thoughts. We have our own pet doctrines. We simply are not willing to do simply what the Bible says. We have a way, we think, around some of the things God says. And our heart is not right. But he's going to turn it by all that he's going to do. I will give them one heart and one way. Oh, one way. We can't all believe what we want, can we? Aren't we all to speak the same mind, same things, to have the same mind? Isn't that what Paul told us in Corinthians? Independent Christians are going to be out. Politically incorrect. You cannot, will not, be able to have your own ideas, your own doctrine. Sorry. There will be one heart and one way. 
that they may fear me forever for the good of them and of their children after them. The church will not listen now, and the world will not listen even to the two witnesses, nor will 90% of the church. That's how bad it is. It is going to take horrible, terrible, painful, emotionally disturbing deaths and dismemberment of most of the population of the earth before people will be willing to listen to God. All the rhetoric, all the preaching will not be enough. Even of the two witnesses who cannot be harmed and fire coming from their mouths to devour any who would hurt them, and plagues of blood, and plagues of plague, and whatever else is chosen as a witness against the world, it will not penetrate. God is going to have to absolutely destroy most of mankind to get anyone's attention. That's how stubborn human nature is. few will repent ahead of time. You and I can be among those. There is still space to repent. I don't know how big it is or how long it will last, but the time is still here that it can be done. And if you haven't found anyone who will tell you what needs to be done, you need to run out of here full speed and go find someone who can tell you what needs to be done. If you don't think I'm doing it, then you'd better go find someone who can. Verse 40, I will make an everlasting covenant with them, but I will not turn away from them to do them good. But I will put my fear in their hearts that they shall not depart from me. To obey God, a certain amount of fear has to be instilled within us. I don't mean that we cower and get in a fetal position all the time before God. But there has to be a certain amount of fear in us. If we don't fear the one who created the universe, and who holds the keys to eternal life or death, and tremble at his words, then we can't be saved. Most people don't tremble at the word of God. Most people laugh at it. And most in the church have their little path through the Bible that they like to follow, but they let much of his words, or many of his words, fall to the ground and won't read them. They have their papers. Brethren, we are to live by every word of God, not just our favorite ones. And we're not to get rid of the ones that we might not like or find ways around them. We have to have fear in our hearts. Do you think, after going through a gulag, dying of starvation, being stalked and deprived, 
cold, miserable, wet, and hungry as slaves, dying, and then being resurrected, do you not think that will put a certain amount of fear in the hearts and minds of those people who come up in the resurrection, the great white throne judgment, let's say? They're going to know what happened at the end of the age. And they are going to fear the one who could bring them up out of the ground and give them life again. That's what it will take to get the attention. What will it take to get yours and mine? I will rejoice over them to do them good. And I will plant them in this land. For thus says the eternal, like as I have brought all this great evil upon this people, I'm in verse 42, so will I bring upon them all the good that I have promised them. Just as surely as he's destroyed the church and will destroy this nation, he will gather and bless. Just as surely. Now I think that we can all see that the demise of the American Empire is upon us. Surely we can see that by now, that it is only a short matter of time until it is all destroyed. God is bringing this about. We are bringing it upon ourselves, but he is orchestrating it and will determine when and how. And just as short as we see this coming, we should firmly believe that the other is coming as well. And fields shall be bought in this land, whereof you say it is desolate without man or beast. It is given into the hand of the Chaldeans. Men shall buy fields for money and subscribe evidences and seal them and take witnesses in the land of Benjamin and in the places about Jerusalem and in the cities of Judah and in the cities of the mountains and in the cities of the valley and in the cities of the south, for I will cause their captivity to return, says the Eternal. So he says all over Israel the captivity will return. And I will bless, as I have never blessed before. So Anathoth is a type of the answer of God's promises that he has promised he will do. And I think it is a fitting title that God gave us, a little piece of ground out in the wilderness in the desert, that if we will come here and we will do what God tells us to do, and become of one mind and one voice and one way, that he will use this as a part of what he does at the end. Only a few thousand will. We can be a part of that few thousand. We do what we are supposed to do. Chapter 33. Moreover, or in addition, the word of the eternal came to be Jeremiah the second time, while he was yet shut up in the court of the prison, saying, Thus says the eternal, the maker thereof, the eternal that formed it, to establish it, the eternal is his name. Call to me, that I will answer you, and show the great and mighty things which you know not. So he will show us great and mighty things, and we will call on him. Other scriptures show that it has to be with our whole heart. You can't half-heartedly uh, lay it a sin or lukewarmly do it. It has to be wholeheartedly. God is after wholeheartedness. It is our very lukewarmness 
that caused this to happen in the first place. God is not content with warm water. <clears throat> so he'll show hidden and mighty things which we don't know. I look forward to knowing what some of those will be. In fact, the pages of this prophecy show you a lot of them. But people don't know about. They're not aware of. They don't understand what it means. For thus says the Eternal, the God of Israel, concerning the houses of this city, and concerning the houses of the kings of Judah, which are thrown down by the mounts and by the sword. They come to fight with the Chaldeans, but it is to fill them with the dead bodies of men whom I have slain in my anger and in my fury, and for all whose wickedness I have hid my face from this city. How many in the church understand that God has hid from the church? How many, and I think it's a large proportion of those who are left in the various organizations, think that God is just blessing what they're doing, and they're just going on and on and doing the work of God. How many understand that a man will not round up the flock, but the flock will come to a man whom God designates? They just don't understand the scripture at all, do they? But he says in verse 6, Behold, I will bring it health and cure, and I will cure them. We read not long ago, is there, why isn't there, or is there not a balm in Gilead to heal the sin-sick soul? God says, I'll send a cure. And I will cure them and will reveal to them the abundance of peace and truth. Wouldn't it be nice to know that you had peace that could not be disturbed, no one could disturb the peace, and that you had all the truth? But God will not reveal truth unless we accept the truth that he has already revealed. And Tukatis didn't reveal any truth. <clears throat> and I will cause the captivity of Judah and the captivity of Israel to return and will build them as at the first. Remember how he built the nation and how he gave them blessings when they came out of Egypt? mighty hand and a mighty arm, doing incredible, incredible miracles, parting a sea, giving manna, giving water out of rocks. And do the same thing. And I will cleanse them from all their iniquity, whereby they have sinned against me. It says he'll remove all our sins in one day in another place. And I will pardon all their iniquities, whereby they have sinned, whereby they have transgressed against me. Well, this is grace in the wilderness that he's talking about. We just read about it back in chapter 31. There's coming a time when our sin, our lukewarmness, will be forgiven. And there shall be to me a name of joy, a praise and an honor before all the nations of the earth, which shall hear all the good that I do to them. See, when God does what he says in Zechariah 2, Jerusalem is built back as villages or towns without walls, and agricultural communities, or agricultural communities, small ones, a few thousand. All the world is going to hear about it. God has told his church and us as individuals to be a light to the world that all can see. And he is going to fulfill that in a small group of people. 
his remnant. All the earth will hear the good that I do to them. And they shall fear and tremble for all the goodness and for all the prosperity that I procure to it. The whole world is going to see that the remnant that has come together as God's church under the leadership of the two witnesses who go out and preach to the whole world and tell what is happening and perhaps TV crews will come and take pictures of what God is doing, and everyone is going to hear about it. You would think that in all the massive destruction that is going to be going on on this earth, that if people see that, they would repent. No, it will scare them. But they won't repent. Thus says the Eternal, Again there shall be heard in this place, which you, which you say shall be desolate, without man and without beast, even in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem that are desolate, without man and without inhabitant and without beast, the voice of joy, the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom, and the voice of the bride. The voice of them that shall say, Praise the eternal of hosts, for the Lord is good, for his mercy endures forever. All this sadness, all this confusion, all this frustration that we have felt is going to be turned into absolute joy and gladness. I think that's why Esther and the lesson of Purim is there for us. But the decree to kill us all is going to come out. That's very clear in Daniel. The decree to kill us all will come forth. The abomination of desolation will be set up. And we'll have to flee from it. Well, why will it be set up? Because they will hate what God is doing on this earth. Light will blind them. Light will scare them. And what do scared animals do when they're cornered? They fight back. They try to try to destroy that which is intimidating and frightening them. And that's what the world will do against God's people. But God will turn for us if we obey the voice of joy and the voice of gladness. And those that say, praise God, his mercy endures forever. I look forward to singing that. We sing it. His mercy endures forever. One of the psalms we sing. But we'll sing it with renewed zest. We'll sing it in a way that we've never sung it before. Because we will feel the effect, the freedom, the beauty of his mercy. And we'll sing it with our whole heart. Now we sing it hopefully. Hoping our sins can be forgiven. Hoping God will overlook our faults and our problems. But then we'll know we're forgiven. And we'll sing like we've never sung before. And of them that shall bring the sacrifice of praise into the house of the eternal. For I will cause to return the captivity of the land as at the first says the eternal. Just as the Jews were so overjoyed that God, obviously God, behind the scenes, turned it around and their enemies were destroyed instead of them. 
What a time to praise God. And it's coming to us as well. Verse 12, thus says the eternal of hosts, again in this place, which is desolate, without man and without beast, and in all the cities thereof, shall be an habitation of shepherds, causing their flocks to lie down. A flock of sheep will not lie down if they're scared. They'll huddle together on foot. Fearful. Fearful they might need to flee. But if a flock is willing to lie down, it shows that the fear has subsided, it's gone away. In the cities of the mountains, in the cities of the vale, and in the cities of the south, the land of Benjamin, and in the places about Jerusalem, and in the cities of Judah, all, all over Israel, in other words, shall the flocks pass again under the hands of him that tells them, says the Eternal, or that counts them, or passes them under the rod. That rod is going to be given to Zerubbabel and Joshua in terms of the church, and that is only a type, then, of the rod of Jesus Christ coming back over the whole world. And in those days, verse 15, and at that time will I cause the branch of righteousness to grow up to David, and he shall execute judgment and righteousness in the land. When it talks about Joshua there in chapter 3 of Zechariah, it says that men of signs and wonders will be there, and after those signs and wonders occur, that God will reveal his servant, the branch. And it's referring to Zerubbabel, it describes that in detail then in chapter 4 and in chapter 6, because he is the righteous branch, that will be his name, the right bough, the right branch, the right limb, that will grow up in leadership of the church under God. That is to happen here at the end. In those days shall Judah be saved, and Jerusalem shall dwell in safely, and shall dwell safely. And this is the name wherewith she shall be called the Lord our righteousness. God calls things what they are. Those who obey and serve God are going to be named the Lord is our righteousness. There will be no more vanity. There will be no more attitude of I am spiritually okay and in need of nothing. That attitude will be gone. Instead of saying, we are righteous, we're the Philadelphians after all, and having that ridge of spiritual vanity and pride, which we all imbibed of, we will be called, the Lord is our righteousness, not our own. For thus says the Eternal, verse 17, David shall never want a man to sit upon the throne of the house of Israel. Neither shall the priests, the Levites, want a man before me to offer burnt offerings and to kindle meat offerings and to do sacrifice continually. There will be those who will obey God and the leadership will obey God. The word of the Eternal came to Jeremiah saying, Thus says the Eternal, If you can break my covenant of the day and my covenant of the night, and that there should not be day and night in their season." Then may also my covenant be broken with David my servant, that he should not have a son to reign upon his throne, and with the Levites, the priests, my ministers. So this is going to carry on what he promised to David right through. Mr. Armstrong said he was able to trace his lineage back to David, or back to Judah and David, and 
I believe that that is probably the case. Here in the end, God saw to it that someone who came from the lineage of David was in charge. And I have no doubt that will also be true of those who come here at the end. And the priests, the ministers, who will be among us at that time. And that time is not far away. As the host of heaven cannot be numbered, neither the sand of the sea measured, so will I multiply the seed of David, my servant, and the Levites that minister to me. I'm going to start out very, very small, with an end-time remnant of a few thousand, and it will grow to encompass the earth. I, I, I so much want to be part of that, brethren. I want you to be part of that. When God starts this thing, it will never end. It will just grow and grow and grow. Because once we're counted faithful here at this end time, and are a part of what God is doing, we'll never turn it loose, will we? And we'll be in that first resurrection, or be changed, whichever comes first. And be a part of it from then on. That's an incredible thing to look forward to. And it's just around the corner. Verse 23, Moreover, the word of the Eternal came to Jeremiah, saying, Consider you not what this people have spoken, saying, The two families which the Eternal has chosen, he has even cast them off. Thus they have despised my people, that they should be no more a people before them. God is working with Judah and Israel, those two families basically, and all the tribes that are associated with them, and ultimately through two men at the end, and those associated with them, They'll be despised. Israel, all Israel, is despised by the world today, and the world is going to have a great confederacy come together and destroy Israel. About to happen. And they'll say, there are no more nations before us. Thus says the Eternal, if my covenant be not with day and night, and I have not appointed the ordinances of heaven and earth, then will I cast away the seed of Jacob and David, my servants, so that I will not take any of his seed to be rulers over the seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For I will cause their captivity to return and have no and have mercy on them. It's just plain going to happen. Let's see if we can get through chapter 34. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Eternal, when Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, all his army and all the kingdoms of the earth, his dominion, and all the people, fought against Jerusalem and against all the cities thereof, saying, Thus says the Eternal, the God of Israel, Go and speak to Zedekiah, king of Judah, and tell him, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will give this city into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall burn it with fire. Isn't that the message that God gives through these prophecies about the church today and about the nation? Aren't these the prophecies we need to be reading today? And you shall not escape out of his hand, but shall surely be taken and delivered into his hand, and your eyes shall behold the eyes of the king of Babylon, and he shall speak with you mouth to mouth, and you shall go to Babylon. The captivity is coming. Isn't it ironic that God tells us in many prophecies, and we're coming up on one pretty soon here in Jeremiah, to get completely away from Babylon. Now, if we are not willing to do that, God says, <laughs> you're going into captivity. 
to Babylon. You don't come out voluntarily. You will go in and suffer involuntarily. Right now we have a choice. That choice will be taken away. It will be involuntary. Yet hear the word of the eternal Zedekiah, king of Judah. Thus says the eternal of you, you shall not die by the sword, but you shall die in peace. And with the burnings of your fathers, the former kings which were before you, so shall they burn odors for you. And they will lament you, saying, O Lord, for I have pronounced the word, says the eternal. He was going to live. Sometimes, you know, it will almost be merciful to be able to die. But he was going to live and see all this captivity. He was going to go through it. Just as much of the church has gone through the spiritual captivity now and death and destruction spiritually, and most, 90%, strong 90 at that, are going to go through the physical tribulation as well. Before it's over, people will be crying for the rocks to fall on them. Death would be mercy. To live will be hardship. Verse 6, in Jeremiah, the prophet spoke all these words to Zedekiah, king of Judah, when the king of Babylon's army fought against Jerusalem and against all the cities of Judah that were left, against Lachish and against Azekah, for these defense cities remained of the cities of Judah. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Eternal, after that the king Zedekiah had made a covenant with all the people which are at Jerusalem to proclaim liberty to them. King Zedekiah made all kinds of promises to the people. didn't happen, did it? But every man should let his manservant and every man his maidservant, being an Hebrew or Hebrewist, go free. That none should serve himself of them, to wit, of a Jew, his brother. Now when all the princes and all the people which had entered into the covenant heard that everyone should let his manservant and everyone his maidservant go free, that none should serve themselves of them any more, then they obeyed and let them go. So a covenant was made that all slaves be given their freedom. They would not be there to serve you anymore. But afterward, they turned and caused the servants and the handmaids whom they had let go free to return and brought them into subjection for servants and for handmaids. Now, let's look at that for a moment spiritually. God tells us to come out of Babylon, and hasn't Babylon provided us with all kinds of manservants and maidservants? Haven't they gotten us all kinds of of inventions and devices to make life easy? To make life, if you will, a joy. Now, we don't have physical servants, but we have things of Babylon that have made America the most spoiled nation on earth, the most spoiled society ever. God tells us to go out, dwell in the wilderness, get rid of Babylon, come away from it. So we said, okay, we'll leave homes and lands and family and jobs, and we'll come out of Babylon We'll 
turn loose of all those servants and things that we enjoyed there that made our lives comfortable. We'll go out in the wilderness and seek God. What if, after making those sacrifices and saying, I will go out to seek God, a people then began to miss the things of Babylon, even as Israel began to miss the onions and leeks of Egypt, and began to turn again to those things rather than being in the wilderness seeking God. What if after making sacrifice, we determined that we needed to bring Babylon here, that we missed our servants of Babylon? What would God think of that? Is there a possibility of complacency where we start going back to those things that we're trying to get away from? Would that not be the trend of history? Would that not be according to human nature? I think that is worth thinking about. Let's see what God thought. Verse 12, Therefore the word of the Eternal came to Jeremiah from the Eternal, saying, Thus says the Eternal, the God of Israel, I made a covenant with your fathers in the day that I brought them forth out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, saying, At the end of seven years, let you go every man his brother in Hebrew, which has been sold to you, and when he has served you six years, you shall let him go free from you. But your fathers hearken not to me, neither inclined their ear. And you were now turned, and had done right in my sight, in proclaiming liberty every man to his neighbor, and you had made a covenant before me and the house which is called by my name. That today could only be the church of God. For we covenanted with God to commit our, our lives to his every word, his every thought, his every wish. That's what we covenanted with him. And when we saw that he required more of us than what we were giving, we began to say, all right then, I'll leave Babylon. All these servants that I've enjoyed in God's church. But you turned and polluted my name and caused every man his servant and every man his handmaid, whom you had set at liberty at their pleasure, to return and brought them into subjection to be to you for servants and for handmaids. Therefore, thus says the Eternal, you have not hearkened to me in proclaiming liberty every one to his brother and every man to his neighbor. Behold, I proclaim a liberty for you, says the Eternal, to the sword, to the pestilence, and to the famine. And I will make you to be removed into all the kingdoms of the earth. You want freedom? You want liberty? God says, all right, I'll give you freedom and liberty. You're free to go on into the pestilence, the war, the destruction, and the captivity. And I will give the men that have transgressed my covenant, which have not performed the words of the covenant which they have made before me, when they cut the, hat, the calf in two and pass between the parts thereof. 
the princes of Judah, the princes of Jerusalem, the eunuchs, the priests, all the people of the land which passed between the parts of the calf. Now this refers back to when God was making a covenant with Abraham, and Abraham divided the lamb, the sheep, the cow, uh, several animals in half, which was halves apart. Birds were in it as well, but they were not cut in half as per Leviticus 117. But I think that the symbolism is there, that if you will make the sacrifices that are needed, God will covenant with you to provide everything you need from here on out. And he goes back to Abraham's sacrifice and his covenant made with God. Abraham is the father of the faithful. Abraham is one to whom we should look. And what we, whatever Abraham did, we need to be very, very aware of in his attitude toward God. He is the one that God used to start this whole thing in process. Better look to Abraham. Herbert Armstrong also took us back to Genesis very often to see what God's original intent was, and I think that that is a wise thing. Even the calendar is another good example of that. Go back to Genesis 1.14, what was God's original intent that the calendar was in the heavens? Pretty simple, pretty clear. But God saw in Abraham what was needed for us to be what we ought to be today. Why, at the end, are we told to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children of the hearts of the children to the fathers and the fathers of the children? Because we have strayed from God our Father and we have strayed from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob our physical fathers whom God used to found us as a people. Physical Israel and ultimately spiritual Israel. One came up again recently. Old argument. Come up again. Just as an example. How we need to be turned to Abraham, our father. And that is that, well, we should only tithe on the increase of our land or farm products. That was brought up recently and someone was even telling others about it and spreading division and confusion. Now, tithing is first mentioned by whom? Abraham. Before the law was ever even given to Israel, Abraham tithed to Melchizedek, to Jesus Christ, the spoils of war. Now that is not the produce of agriculture. Abraham is the father of Israel that we are to look back to and do what Abraham did. The people will ignore that and bypass it and go where it says, well, tie the increase of your field and your flock and so on. And they're ignoring the first tithing mentioned in the Bible that was not of agricultural products. And it is mentioned in Hebrews where it discusses the subject and said that Abraham gave the spoils of war and that is New Testament teaching. Now God says he is not a respecter of persons, right? 
Now, what if you were a farmer in ancient days, and there were coppersmiths and goldsmiths and carpenters and various other trades around, which there were back in those days. They had the tradesmen who built the tabernacle and so on. What if only farmers tithed? How would farmers feel? How many farmers would remain farmers? We're the only class of people that has to tithe. Anybody else doesn't have to. Now, would that be a respecter of persons or what? That is ludicrous in the extreme to think that God would saddle only farmers with first, second, and third tithe and everyone else could keep all their money. Does that make any kind of sense or logic whatsoever? And then Paul said he had authority to take tithes of the people and he was talking to Corinthians who weren't farmers. Probably wasn't a farmer in the congregation when he said that. God is not a respecter of persons. And God makes it very clear that one of the major issues he is concerned about is us robbing him in the end time church when he is making up his jewels. In tithes and offerings, not one or the other, but both. So you can't classify it as just free will offerings. It's tithes and offerings. So tithing is very much in effect at the end. That's why we look back to Abraham, our father, who's tithed on the spoils of war. God is not a respecter of persons. Now, if only farmers tithe, therefore only farmers would have second tithe, right? Only farmers could go to the feast. Now, if only farmers tithe, that means that only people who were poor or widowed or orphaned who needed help, if they weren't associated with a farmer, they had to live in the city, they didn't get any help. Only those who are blessed who have a farmer nearby could receive third tithe. See how stupid and ridiculous those arguments are? Now, I think God is making it very, very clear in Malachi where he says he is very angry at the church for not tithing, and Jodokos did away with it. He's very angry about it. And I cannot for a moment imagine that when God brings forth his tithe, his remnant, he is jealous about his tithe. That tithe was given to us to teach us something. And if we don't learn it, and we don't tithe, I cannot imagine God including us as his tithe of his people. Can't imagine. If we are unwilling to do that, which pictures God separating his faithful tithe, why would he make us 
a part of the reality. If you don't perform the type, you will not be a part of the reality. I think that is very clear. And there is no way to get around Malachi as being an end-time book about the church today. And God is no respecter of persons. All laws are for all people. God tells us in the end, we must have our hearts turned to our fathers. Our fathers Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are one level of that. Our heavenly father, our historical fathers, and respect for physical fathers. The very next chapter is about that. We don't have time to get there today. But that chapter follows this one. There's a reference made to God here. Then there's a reference made to Abraham's faithfulness. Then there is made a reference made to the Rechabites who were faithful to their physical father's instructions, even though those instructions went further than God's commands. But they respected their fathers so much, or their father, Jonadab, that they did what he asked, even though it wasn't found in God's commands. It was a personal wish that he had for whatever reason he had it. And they honored it generation after generation. Incredible story of the Rechabites. We'll get there. <clears throat> but if we don't follow the covenant as made with Abraham, all the people, verse 19, now verse 20, I will even give them into the hand of their enemies, into the hand of them that seek their life. And their dead bodies shall be for meat to the fowls of the heaven and to the beasts of the earth. We better be sure we keep every part of the spiritual covenant that God made with Abraham. Or we will go into the activity. I think it says right here, we will not be part of God's remnant his time. And Zedekiah, king of Judah, and his princes will I give into the hand of their enemies and into the hand of them that seek their life and into the hand of the king of Babylon's army, which are gone up from you. Behold, I will command, says the Eternal, and cause them to return to this city, and they shall fight against it, and take it, and burn it with fire, and I will make the cities of Judah a desolation without an inhabitant. So if we reject any part of God's covenant, we will die. I think that is very, very clear. So he's promised great blessings for those who will obey, and death for those who will not. 